0: Hallelujah! Well, I'm I'm excited this morning because I have a have a word in my heart. Well, certainly every time I preach, I have a word in my heart, but this one is 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 dear to my heart. And I tell you, I've already been telling people at Bible study and what have you. This one is in part inspired by a conversation I was having at youth Bible study. I was leading youth Bible study on Wednesday, and we were having a conversation. We were talking about the Samaritan women in Jesus and when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan women I was trying to lay out a context for people understanding uh, what Jesus had to go through when he was asking the Samaritan women for water because of course what we know is that the Samaritans and the Jews they did not get along. And so I used an analogy to explain the context when Jesus asked her for water. I said, imagine if you are a police officer and you needed some water and you walked into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters asking them for water. What would that be like? Or what if you were a Black Lives Matter protester walking into a police, a group of police officers asking them for water? What would that be like? That was the context that Jesus stepped into. And one of the students she said, "Wow, I'd never thought of it like that and then she and then she asked a question somewhat musing to herself, but also asking me. she said, "Yeah, how do you deal with the police and and, and that 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 question just struck me deep on several levels one, what is a tenth grader doing asking that question? Why is that something she is even thinking about It also talk brought me back to the well, really, there is this thing that we, we talk about now more often. We call it, quote, unquote, the talk that you have with your child, particularly in the African-American community, where you have a conversation with them about the realities of policing and how people may perceive you. Those were the, some of the thoughts that were going through my mind. But most importantly, I was thinking of it as a pastor. I said, how do I pastor a teenager with that question? You know, your pastor is basically a pastor means shepherd, right? A pastor is the person in whom you hear the voice of the shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. He is the pastor, but he touches, uh, he touches people who are called to be pastors and through whom he leads them and talks to them to navigate the flock through difficult terrain. And at that moment, I sensed the responsibility of not just navigating her and not just at navigating other young people who have that question, but navigating the flock Through what comes to us as difficult terrain, how do we deal with this? And hence the title of this message and series, Politics and Policing, What's a Christian to Do? Politics and Policing, What's a Christian to Do? What's a Christian to do? Today's sermon in series is about how to respond to our current political and policing crisis as a Christian. As a Christian. This is really important because that's really my job is to shepherd you in your life as a Christian, not as Whatever identity you may take on, whether it be racially or your profession or what region of the country you're from or what what country you're from, that's not my job to navigate you through that. But as a pastor, my job is to navigate you through your reality as a Christian. And no matter who you are or what uniform you may wear, if you are a Christian, your loyalty is to Christ. Your loyalty to Christ must come before all other loyalties. Your loyalty to Christ must come before all other loyalties. People will address you based on what they see on the outside, but you must respond based upon who you are on the inside. That statement makes me think about something the Apostle Paul stated in the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16, he says this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. You see, Paul had gotten this lesson. He realized some things that I can't reevaluate people based upon their flesh. And so he says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, certainly he became human. We regard him thus no longer because, of course, they see who he really is. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I'm reading from the ESV, it says he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are a, cre- a Christian, you are a new creation. You may not look any differently on the outside. You may not have anything differently happen you, uh, uh, externally, but internally you are different. And because of that, when something happens to you, you have to respond based upon who you are on the inside. If you are a Christian, your identity is in Christ. There's a lot being said today about identity politics, and I'm a professor, I deal with all kinds of things, I teach African-American literature and all these other kinds of things, I understand identity politics, but as a Christian, my identity foundationally is in Christ. If you are a Christian, your identity is in Christ, all other identities are secondary and temporary. All other identities are secondary and temporary. That's not to say that they don't have significance or meaning. As I've talked about in the past, the Bible talks about how the nations will worship him in heaven and there will be people with different languages. And presumably it suggests that there's some aspect of our human culture and human nationalities that will also be present in heaven, but in a redeemed state. So I'm not suggesting that our diversity doesn't matter. I've, of course, talked about this, but in terms of our identity how we identify it is first Christ let's read Colossians 3 1 through 5 to give us some context here it says this if then you have been raised with Christ right Christ was raised from the dead Paul is saying if you have been raised with Christ spiritually right seek the things that are above in other words you got to seek the things that are associated with your new identity Let's continue. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, that means your old life, whatever you were before, who, however you identified before, that person is dead and your life is now hidden in Christ or with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. But verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You know, this uh, election season, this pandemic, these economic difficulties, these fires, they can draw out what is earthly in us. That, 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 that fleshly, earthly person that we may try to continue to identify with even though we're a Christian may try to rise up in us and the scripture says put that person to death. Specifically here is talking about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. However, believe it or not, people who have taken on social, cultural, and political identities that are linked to these qualities... They have these fleshly, carnal qualities manifested in identities they have adopted because they are so committed and loyal to their political party or to their union or to their kind of racial context or whatever it is, and they're so tied to it that they have lost their tie to their identity with Christ. And if you are a Christian, if there is an issue or if there is a policy, you must first pivot from your identity in Christ. Let's continue, Colossians 3, 8 through 11, it says this, But now you must put away all uh, anger, (laughs) wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. You know, it's interesting. The Bible does talk about a place for anger, okay? But it's really when it's anger against injustice. It's not personal offense anger. When Jesus got angry and flipped the tables, it wasn't because of personal offense. It was because he was concerned about people desecrating his father's house. Anger that is tied to us being personally angry is not the kind of anger that God is talking about when he talks about righteous indignation. And so sometimes we are addressing injustice appropriately... But we have to draw the fine line between expressing our personal anger and expressing righteous anger. When our personal anger gets expressed, it falls into slander, where you are desecrating someone's character. You're making it personal. You're you're, you're making broad statements about people. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I am concerned about the way policing is taking place. I'm concerned about the injustices. I'm concerned about uh, the, the way in which racial bias has played in, 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 in people dying unnecessarily. And at the same time, I'm not going to slander police officers. I'm not going to respond to them in malice. I'm going to let my personal anger, set, I'm going to set that aside and only sit within anger against injustice. It's a fine line. But some people cross that line and they step into the flesh and carnality. And the scripture says that when we are in Christ, that is not for us. We lay that stuff aside. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, by bar- barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. It lists all of these categories based upon uh, class and, and race and all these other kind of things that are subordinate to our realities in Christ. Now, understand I'm not suggesting these racial concepts aren't significant. If you've heard me preach, you know I spend a lot of time dealing with matters addressing the African-American community, in the church, outside the church, in my profession, I'm not suggesting those things aren't things we should put emphasis on. All I'm saying is that we have to pivot from our Christian identity. The hard truth we must all face is that righteousness and justice begin and end with Jesus. Righteousness and justice begins and ends with Jesus. Why is that a hard truth? Well, we'll see. First, we'll go to Psalms 89:14. I just wanna put some a biblical basis for this. I don't just wanna say it. I know we know Jesus is righteous and he's just, but I want you to see it in scripture. Psalms 89:14, it reads this way: Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Ephesians 1:20 20 through 21. I'm gonna read that in a second, but just to reflect on that piece. Briefly, God is the source of righteousness and justice. Guess what? God's objective. We're not objective. So when we make claims about injustice, no matter who it is, it's always subjective because we don't have the perspective God has. And God and Jesus are the standard for righteousness. And justice. And so let's look at where Jesus is positioned, as we see in Ephesians 1:20 20 through 21. It says this that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is seated on seated on this throne, and this throne is founded in justice and righteousness. So if we want to see what justice is, if we want to see what righteousness is, we have to look at Jesus. We have to pivot from him. And the thing is, it's going to be counterintuitive because it's going to go against our flesh because we have personal things we want done in the process. And those personal things don't always align with the way that Jesus sees justice, and therein lies the rub. It continues. This is why Christ is hated. He talked about it in the book of John. People do not naturally prefer his standard of right and wrong. We don't. We don't naturally prefer Christ's standard. You know why? Because Jesus represents the end of our concept of right and wrong. It gets real. I want you to think a minute about the story of Jonah. Jonah. For example, let's use Jonah, for example, to think about this. We all know Jonah, or we're familiar with the story. He was supposed to preach to the people of Nineveh, and uh, he didn't want to. And he didn't want to preach to them because he knew if he preached to them, they would repent and God would forgive them. And he said, Those are some bad, those folks need to die. They have done things so terrible, I don't want God to have mercy on them. Now, we always laugh at Jonah, and Jonah was so rebellious, et cetera, et cetera. But let's flip it. Let's say it wasn't Jonah in the Ninevites. Let's just say it was the police officers who unjustly shot the black men. And we want them to get their due. And we don't want God to have mercy on them because we want them to suffer because they did something so bad. But the heart of God is not punishment. The heart of God is for people's heart to turn. And what do we care about most? That people suffer for their crimes or that their heart turns to God. Now, I'm not saying that's the case in this situation. I'm just saying God's justice is counterintuitive, and he may be seeking something we're not. He wants people to turn to him. How many times has he had mercy on us? Let's continue. Listen. I'll just read this. John 15, 18, it says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Again, Jesus receiving that hate. Why is Jesus receiving that hate? Because they don't like his standard of righteousness. Just like Jonah didn't want to do what God said, he didn't like God's standard of righteousness. John 15, 25, Jesus is saying, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That doesn't mean that they hate you for no reason. It just means you haven't done anything wrong, but they hate you. Why? Because they're messing up your program. Jesus doesn't go in the direction we think he's going to go with something, and then we get angry. Because we want our vengeance. We want our justice, but God wants his justice. So whose justice is going to win, us or his? The basic premise of Christ following is to deny yourself and to follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, Jesus says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Let me just stop right there. Listen, if your mama or daddy is not more important than Jesus, do you think your police union is more important than Jesus? Do you think your political party is more important than Jesus? Do you think your ideology is more important than Jesus? He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Why does Jesus tell us to take up the cross? Because we got to die to what we think is right. It's rough. It's rough. Let me tell you something. We're going to have to make that voting booth our altar. And some of us are going to have to put our political Isaacs on that altar and say, God, if I need to sacrifice what I think is right for what you think is right, you tell me. Here's how I'm going to vote. But Lord, what's on your heart? If I'm not seeing rightly, show it to me. You know, what's funny, Solomon, before he became king, he said, God, I don't know how to rule. I'm not smart enough to determine right and wrong. You can give me riches, yeah. You can give me uh, guns and and, and things to defeat my enemies, yeah. But, Lord, I want wisdom because I don't know how to judge right and wrong. And God was like, okay. Why don't we do that as voters? Why do we go in the voting booth assuming we know and not saying, God, I don't know. I don't know. Only you know. Show me your heart, and I will do what you want me to do. I will vote however you want me to vote. I will, I will align myself with however you want me to align myself. And let me tell you something. If you go to the voting booth submitted to Jesus, you will have a peace that no election result can take away. So essentially, Jesus is saying that we have to die to self. The self piece is really interesting. Keep in mind that when we speak of self, we are not merely talking about you individually or me individually, but about all the historical and cultural ideas and practices that have influenced us. We're a reflection of our families and our backgrounds and our neighborhoods and our regions of the country. I can tell you used to live in the South. I can tell you used to live in the East Coast. I can tell you used to live in Minnesota because of all of the history and the culture in those particular regions of the country. They're part of you. I can tell you used to be an athlete. I can tell you used to be an artist. or Whatever culture professionally you've come from, it's with you. The ideas of all the people who have influenced you are part of you. So what you think about policing is also heavenly influenced by historical and cultural contexts. In fact, many people have a perspective on policing and politics that they think is Christian, but it's really just cultural and deeply tied to historical patterns. I got to let you know, some people wonder, well, why people? How can people be so angry at the police? I mean, you know. I mean, I I don't understand it. That's disrespectful. For some people, they grew up, it's sacred. The police are sacred. Other people, not so much. They didn't have, they don't have a history of having a good relationship with the police. And so our perspectives are shaped by that history and that culture. And we may not agree, but we need to at least understand the context from which people are coming. And for some people, the trust has not been built up enough for them to give police the benefit of the doubt. For other people, it has. So those realities have to come into play, and then we have to evaluate whether our cultural ideas about police are biblical. Now I'm going to get into something right now. I'm going to reference a scripture I read last time I preached, and I was reading it within the context of some other point I was trying to make. I was talking about the reality that all authority comes from God, and I quoted it, but I really didn't get a chance to kind of dig into it, and today I am, so that we can look at this with some perspective. And this specifically not only addresses police, but also authority. The Bible talks about it explicitly. Romans 13, 1 through 6, it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God, right? We talked about that two weeks ago. God is the author of authority. Humans are just using it, borrowing it, stewarding it. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Just like when people attack the church, they're not attacking the church, they're attacking God. They're attacking God. Same thing with other authorities he's established. When you resist his authority, you you are resisting God. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. In other words, rulers don't, rulers don't punish people for doing good things. They punish them for doing bad things. Of course, this is presuming this, the, the ruler is a, of good character. Certainly, this is assuming that. But in principle, that's the purpose of authority to, among other things, when they punish bad people and put people in jail, it's not because they're doing good, it's because they're doing bad. That's the idea. It says, would you have no fear of the one who is an authority, right? Then to do what is good and you will receive his approval. In other words, do good things and you won't, and, and, and you, you, the, 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 the government won't do bad things to you if you do good things. This is the idea. Now, stay with me now. I know some of you, well, you know, well, what about this? I'm, I'm going to get to those things, but let me finish reading the scripture here. Why? Because we have to pivot from the scripture. Then uh, verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But so the government, the police officers, they are God's servants, the Bible says, for your good. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, so I know this is difficult for some people, but if you encounter somebody from the government, or you encounter a police officer and this is the first time you're seeing them, right, you've got to respect them as a representative of God. Now, we're going to get into if they abuse their power in a second, okay, but I'm just saying you can't go into it disrespect. Unless there's some specific context for that, but to just to go in and just say, I'm not going to respect you because you a cop, that is unbiblical. Well, first of all, let me back up. Uh, 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 a police officer, number one, is a person. And every person is made in the image of God. So they at least are owed your, their respect as someone made in the image of God. Now, you can criticize them if they're doing something unprofessional or illegal but you are not to disparage them in terms of dehumanizing them, just like they shouldn't dehumanize you. Now, if you do something wrong, they can punish you, but they also shouldn't dehumanize you. There are boundaries because we're humans, and we're seeing today that some of those boundaries have not been honored, which is why we're crying out for injustice. I understand that, but I'm saying as a Christian, when you go in, that officer, that whoever works for the government is, a, is, a, is someone who works for God. They may not think they do, may not know they do, But our responsibility is to at least, when we first encounter them, to give that benefit of the doubt. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you are also to pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's why I don't slander police officers. I may be upset with some protocols. I may be upset with some instances. I may be upset with some systemic things, but I'm not going to slander them out of respect for God. Okay. Now, Let's look at this from the other side of the coin. Authority always has two sides. See, there are people who quote this passage, and you've heard them. You've heard them. As if, it, uh, as if this passage alone settles the debate on how to respond to the police. They said, well, you know, uh, black people just need to submit, and they just need to be quiet, and they just need to do what the police officer says. And if that happens, nothing's going to happen. Okay? Here's the deal. No principle of Scripture is isolated from all the other principles of Scripture. So you got to look at all the other principles too. And as we look at those principles, what it tells us is that authority figures are also held accountable. Let's look at this. Luke 3, 7 through 14 is really interesting You have this passage, John the Baptist is baptizing people. He is uh, telling people to repent, and people are feeling convicted. And so they're coming to him, and they're saying, what what do we have to do? I mean, what do I have to do to get right with God, right? And so he's talking to them. Verse 7, he says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're going to repent, act like you repented. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for, uh, for Abraham. In other words, just because you're a Christian in name doesn't mean you're a Christian in reality. Don't just throw names out there. you got to act like a Christian. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, if you're merely Christian in name but not in action, you're going to receive judgment. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him. Here's where it gets interesting. What then shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12 is the clincher. Didn't we just get finished talking about tax collectors and law enforcement officers? Here come the tax collectors feeling convicted. I wonder what about. And the tax collectors come to John this, and the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13 And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, if you understand the context, tax collectors were people, many times they were also Jewish people. So this is they were this is why they were hated, because they were seen as people who who were traitors to their own folks. They worked for the Roman government. They would collect taxes, and then they would collect a little bit more over the top. And if you didn't pay, they can get a Roman soldier to come and, and do something with that, right? So you pay them extra money, right? So they would cheat. That's what kids was about, just taking people's money, doing more than what they were authorized to do. Police officers and tax collectors, they have limits. They, they're under authority, too. They're not supposed to go beyond their authority. Verse 14, soldiers, this is where we get to the policing here, right? Soldiers also asked him, and what and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not ex- extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. In other words, they didn't like what they were getting paid. So they just they could work, they could probably in partnership with the tax collectors, they can threaten people and make them pay money they couldn't afford or could or didn't want to pay. Right? So in other words, You you got got crooked law enforcement officers and crooked tax collectors, and God is holding them accountable. See, here's the reality. Divine authority placed in human hands is a two-way street. There is accountability on both sides of the equation to the one exercising power and to the one submitting to power. Here's the clincher. In essence, God is asking us to submit to authority, not to abuse. God is asking us to submit to authority, not to abuse. If you read the system, it's set up where the person who is in authority is submitted to God and the person who's submitting to authority is submitted to God. Why? Because God doesn't factor in abuse. So as a safeguard against abuse, God's system of authority requires that parties on both sides of power are submitted to Christ. Both sides of the equation are submitted to Christ. What does that mean? That means if you're a law enforcement officer, your loyalty is first, to, and you're a Christian, your loyalty first is to Jesus, not to the union. If you are a protester, your loyalty first is to Jesus, not to an organization, not to an ideology. If you're a voter, your loyalty first is to Jesus not to a political party, not to a political candidate, and we pivot from there. Now, we're going to get into this more next week, but of course the question is, when a power is abused, then what do we do? Because he didn't design it for abuse to happen. He designed for the authority figure to do right, and the person submitted to authority to do right, and we already know what happens to the person who's submitting to authority. If they don't do right, we know what's going to happen to them. But what happens to the person in power? And what's the Christian thing to do to respond to that? We're going to get into it next week, but, but, at, but our principle is what? you got to start with your submission to Christ. If you don't start with your submission to Christ, you, 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 you are, what are you doing? You are shrugging off all of his intervention. People will be like, well, God help me, but then you don't want to submit to God's order. That's the first thing we have to do. If you're a cop, and I know what happens, because I see some of them sometimes, you know, nothing happens, but, you know, we pass each other, we kind of look, and both of us are a little tense. You know, we walk past because of the tension that we, we kind of see. Is this going to be trouble? He, the police officer's thinking it, I'm thinking it. It's not going to be any trouble, but because of all the stuff in the news, we kind of thinking it. And if you're a police officer and you don't know what this person is going to do, and you're a Christian, pray. Lord, help me handle this right. Help me be submitted to you. Help me, know, help me to not go beyond my authority. And to, I'm a minister of God help me to represent you in the way I do law enforcement. And if you're a citizen minding your own business and you are encountered by a cop, say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I may say the right thing or not say what I'm not supposed to say or do what I'm supposed to do. I don't know who this person is, but I pray that I'm led by your spirit. Imagine, imagine if that happened, if the Forget the folks who aren't Christian for a second. It's just the Christians who are law enforcement officers and the Christians who were, who were civilians just prayed the moment they had an encounter how things, things would be different. But our first, our go-to is flesh, flesh, fear, anger. They're not right. They're going to do something wrong. They're going to get me. They're going to, that's our first reaction instead of, Lord, you got this. That person is a minister of God. I'm going to honor your authority. I'm going to let you lead the way. And the officer's saying, you know, Lord, this person is a person made in the image of God. I'm going to respect them, and I'm going to let you lead me and guide me as I navigate this infraction. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace, and we thank you for your wisdom. Lord, you are our shepherd and we shall not want because you lead us and guide us the right way, Lord. This is difficult terrain politically, socially, economically, culturally. But, Lord, you're still our shepherd. You're Lord of it all. And we receive the wisdom you have for us to navigate this.